Hey, Rach, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, pretty good, thanks, friends. Nice afternoon. So, uh, I mean, I'd rather be spending more time outside, if I'm honest, but uh, needs must. I'm glued to the laptop. Yeah, no, I completely hear you. It's uh, definitely one of those unavoidable things at the moment. So much going on, but for, for good reason, of course. Um, so, look, we're going to have a chat this afternoon about about the work that you did over at NHS Digital, if that's okay, uh, because you know I know a little bit about it, but I want to find out a bit more from yourself on uh, what happened over there with the Empower the Person program, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, of course, no problem at all. Cool, so can you tell me a little bit about the program and what your role was over at NHS Digital on the Empower the Person program? Uh, yeah, of course. So. Um, I I went into NHS Digital to um, to lead the Empower the Person program, uh, and that was made up of all patient facing transformation. So the overall program was called Paperless Twenty Twenty, and there was probably a dozen, if not more, programs of work within that. Uh, and within each of the programs, there were a number of projects. So for Empower the Person. Um, if you imagine, the problem statement that we were working to was reducing footfall in an A&E. So we're working back from people heading into A&E rather than plugging into the NHS the right way. So what we needed to do was to kind of start the journey around introducing new ways of engaging with the NHS and if you bear in mind, this is going back nearly five years now. So a lot of digital disruption had happened. Um, so you had banks that were uh, providing services online. Um, you know, we've all been buying from bloody Amazon and buying holidays online for donkeys. But the NHS was was very much at the at the start of that journey and that process. And if I give an example, day one in the role, I was met with walls of Gantt charts uh, and my five programs and they're like, we're going to transform. And I was uh, thinking, Christ, we're going to have to start transforming with the, the methodology and the way that we're even thinking and approaching this. So the remit really was, was to deliver uh, five different projects or programs at work. So NHS choices needed transforming into nhs.uk. Uh, and Choices was flat file content, huge amounts of flat file content, but much of it was written at kind of age 18. Uh, and we really needed to make that more accessible uh, for the public to consume. But we also needed to build out live transactional services. So a lot of Choices was signposting, but um, it needed to, to move to the next stage. We also had a big program of work around widening digital participation. So we were working with hard to reach groups in way of making sure we were upskilling digital skills. And, and we did a lot of outreach work, whether that was working with uh, homeless, different age demographics, you know, different groups from diversity, neurodiversity, to make sure the services we were providing uh, could be used by, by everybody. The, the other uh, program of work was the NHS Apps Library. And this was about creating a way of actually accrediting the apps that the NHS recommended. So clinically uh, accrediting and also technically making sure that they were, they were sound and robust. 
And then there was citizen ID. So citizen ID was a precursor to the NHS login, but it was about authenticating the individual with the NHS. And, and that led on to the NHS app um, and the ability to then register with a GP, but also access your medical record. So prior to that, there was no way of people roaming around having their, having their data on their phone uh, and accessible. So they were, the, they were the main projects as part of that program. And my role really was as delivery director, I needed to build out the capability, combination of uh, permanent interim and supplier to make sure that we could deliver the ambition for these programs in a pretty rapid timeframe and, and that we could also face off to the other programs, uh, making up paperless 2020 and, and kind of deliver inwardly and also externally, if that makes sense. And I can talk much more about how we reshape the governance, how we reshape the operating model, how we created the physical working space, you know, for the team. But the reality was when I landed on day one, there was 120 permanent staff looking after the choices service. And there was a small team of interims who'd started to look at the transformation, um, but neither fully respected or understood the skills on either side. So there was a big piece of, uh, of change management uh, before, we, uh, before we got going. Wow, that's an incredible amount of work under one program. How long were you doing it for? So I was with NHSD for uh, 22 months. Wow. And, and, and how long had the program been going, like either prior to yourself or after you do on? So NHS.UK was probably six to 12 months of thinking at a project level, but it wasn't wrapped up in a program, mm. uh, wasn't funded, didn't have business case signed off. And the other projects, I think, were more conceptual. So it was really the energy from Paperless 2020 that, that got uh, these multiple programs of work galvanized. But there was absolutely some thinking about direction of travel on NHS.UK from the Department of Health team. Brilliant. Now, that sounds really good. And, you know, I've used quite a few of the applications myself. Um, only quite recently downloaded the NHS app, funny enough, now that I've got a need for repeat prescriptions, which I didn't have before. Which oh, I think it's, was... a brilliant, it's a brilliant app and has evolved a lot since the first iteration that, you know, that we pushed out a few years ago. Yeah, and it actually made... It was quite interesting because I'd never had a need for it before, but all of a sudden I... I I do primarily for that that piece of functionality, I think. At least that was the starting point for me. But I realised talking to a lot of other people, they they still don't know that that app exists. They know the COVID-19 app exists because of all the recent news. But whenever I talk to them about you can order repeat prescriptions via your NHS app, so many people have no idea because it, it's funny, and I, I don't know if it's a communication thing, but my GP will tell me, they want me to download some sort of app that they've bought into. My pharmacist will tell me they want me to download some different app that they've bought into. But nobody's coming up to me up front and saying, hey, did you know the NHS have got an app for doing this very thing? And I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Rand, in way of some of the complexity, both of the interoperability challenge for the NHS, but also... You can't dominate the market from an NHS perspective. There will always be an ecosystem and always a need for it, whether it is 
you know, I mean, I have a view um, that it probably shouldn't be apps. It probably should be web services, but for some of these things. But I, I think that there is a, you know, there's a plethora of solutions out there that if they were to knit together a bit better would be incredibly powerful. But the, yeah, the, the NHS app for, for me is, you know, it enables me to have my medical history. Interestingly, I was born in 78. And my medical records only go back to 82. So I don't know what happened in the GP surgery in Congleton and Cheshire for those first four years. But um, maybe they weren't recording on paper then, mate. Who knows? Could be that far back. But, but I walk around with that data on my phone the whole time. And for somebody who is chronically asthmatic, you know, that makes me feel more comfortable uh, because should anything happen, I can make that data available, um, at, you know, the, the push of a button. And it's interesting, when I had my COVID-19 vaccine, I immediately just pulled up my information on the app and gave them my NHS number and other bits. And that was pre-NHS digital launching the, the NHS uh, number service. But uh, I mean, I, I think it's incredible. And the you know, the work that the, the team have done to develop that and the roadmap for the app um, in the last couple of years is just coming on kind of leaps and bounds. Yeah, no no doubt. And I've, I've seen that roadmap as well. It's, it's quite phenomenal. Some of the things they're now looking into, especially, you know, there's all sorts of bits around things like digital maternity services because of that classic gigantic book that you have to remember in your appointments and if you lose it you're, you're done for that's the problem i think where red book was one of the projects that we looked at early doors um and it was one of the pro projects in empower the person and the reality of course is exactly that i mean let's face it most of us can't keep a piece of paperwork for longer than a month so you're expecting something to you know remain intact for the duration of your kids life i mean that's uh, you know that's crying out for a you know a, a storage of a digital variety yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, definitely a single point of failure, I think, especially when you've got so many other things going on um, where you could lose that thing or, or all, all manner of things could happen. But yeah, it'd be great to see what comes of that. I think if I look back then at, so when you started on this program, because it's an incredible amount of work, a huge undertaking, lots of people involved. I mean, how do you really get started with something like that? You mentioned... Um, some governance work needed to happen. So, you know, how how do you get these sorts of programs in shape and moving to start delivering some real outcomes? One of the really interesting bits for us was when I first started, there was ten different program boards across the main A. And and Juliet Bauer and I decided really early on that we weren't going to spend our time sitting in ten program boards for obvious reasons because we wanted to actually do some delivery. So we, we recut the, uh, the structure and we created one board for Domain A and, and we assembled the, you know, the right team of people. So we probably had a dozen representative, um, you know, Simon Eccles um, sat on the board and we, we had uh, Tara, uh, who at that time was working for NAHSN, and we had a representative from, from NICE, we had Public Health England. So we had all areas represented. Actually, sorry, it wasn't Simon Eccles, it was Matthew Swindells at that time. So Matthew actually chaired the board. But 
it was an immediate thing for us. And both of us to have a private sector background, we were never going to sit in 10 program boards a month because it just would have been a massive drainer, but also wouldn't have focused us on outcome or delivery. And and we also, you know, we, we reset the rules around those program boards. So we pulled parts of the team in to do a show and tell um, and, and we made those program boards much more akin to a, a combo of an agile and a waterfall set up. There's no denying, you know, we had to review uh, finances and budgets and look at risks and issues, but we also wanted that program team to have a look at, you know, the tangible, what were we actually building? And you're not going to get people at that level rocking up to a show and tell. And we wanted to respect that fact. Um, and so we uh, we pulled in um, aspects of, of show and tell as we were building uh, products and services into the board meetings, which, uh, which landed brilliantly. Uh, and they absolutely loved it. A lot of the time, I think people in senior roles are so far removed from seeing the actual thing. And the reality is 75% of us learn visually so you know why why not give them the opportunity to do that yeah i completely agree and that's a a great way to bridge some of those divides that you can typically have between leadership teams and delivery teams and it makes sense to bring those things together um, because at the end of the day you're working towards the same goals the same thing um so it makes sense to bring those disciplines together so that you are much, you know, much better sighted on the intricacies of what you're doing and, and able to see what the impacts on the decisions are that you're making down the line as well. If you cast your mind back to that time as well, what was the first, because there's five different services in there, what was like the first big success or the big win that you remember and, you know, remember celebrating about that evening? I know, I know this immediately. So NH uh, Choices was built out on 27 different solutions, technical solutions, and it was costing three million a year in way of running the service. And that didn't include the headcount that was running the service. So there's 120 FTEs running that service. So uh, the first big win was moving to an open source headless CMS. So when we first started looking at choices, um, the thinking was very much, you know, another big proprietary uh, CMS. And it was like, that's not going to cut the mustard. You know, we've got to move to uh, an open source CMS of the headless variety that allows us to build out live transactional services. If we just went from uh, one CMS to another, we would almost have cut over the content and not redesign what we had to do. We had to redesign you know, how we publish that content. Of those 120 FTEs, there would have been at least 30 journalists sitting in there. And so we needed something that was uh, flexible enough, but also you know, kind of powerful enough for that job. And we selected Wagtail after extensive debates and discussions um, and trips to a technical design authority. Uh, but uh, Tony Yates was my CTO and, um, and Andy Callow's team were the, uh, the team looking after choices. And, you know, we were, we were absolutely delighted. So not only had we stripped the spend out of the, uh, some of the live service costs, on licenses, but also we've been able to to pivot to something that we knew would be future-proofed. Interestingly, has now become the CMS uh, of choice across the NHS, but subsequently has been picked up by you know NASA, Instagram. So you've got some proper big outfits using it. But at that time, it was pretty 
you know, it was lightweight in way of uh, how well it was known. So all all power to, you know, Tony and Andy and, and Rob Sinclair, who were absolutely pushing that we went uh, we went that way. Awesome. That sounds really good. That's really cool. So Wagtail, yeah, brilliant CMS has, yeah, grown in massive popularity as well. And it definitely, I think, the NHS.UK service is like one of their kind of cornerstone achievements, I think, which has led to that platform going uh, really far. And, and I'm a big advocate as well, just generally of open source technology being used for a lot of this stuff, especially for public services. It just makes sense because the the community aspect of it, the, the amount of support that those systems have got, how scalable they are, um, you know, especially if they've got a, a healthy community behind them that are active contributors as well, it just ensures the longevity of that service over time, you know, rather than being um, penned in maybe by a particular supplier that can only last as long as, you know, they exist. Open source systems tend to last a lot longer. But yeah, if we look at also, you know, some of the challenges involved in the in the program, were there any kind of memorable challenges that you had and ways in which you managed to overcome them? Yeah, plenty of challenges. Well, one of the key bits was the environment that the team were working in. So we were working in uh, Elephant and Castle, and it was a very vanilla office. Um, and we really needed to create uh, the right working environment for uh, the digital teams. So we took on some space in the uh, Victoria Street building next door to Google, and it was huge open 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 plan. Um, I've got open source in my head, so it was huge open uh, plan uh, place, and it allowed us to whiteboard uh, the walls. It allowed us to create, you know, some of the uh, stand-up desks, but also um, the kind of pod arrangements really for teams to be working in. And we we moved domain A and B. So we moved Empower the Person and Urgent and Emergency Care. So Sam Shah's team over uh, and, and Chris Fleming's. And that that just, firstly, it helped break down some of the barriers between two of the biggest domains. And secondly, it created the right environment for us to, to actually be, be working and delivering in. And I'd say that was a, a fundamental challenge, but something that we, we overcame. One of the other big challenges was we couldn't staff up purely with uh, perm and interim because of the scale of this. So we we had to, um, if you bear in mind, DOS was pretty new at that time using DOS outcomes. So we used DOS specialists and David Kershaw led this work. But it was work, you know, as, as we were looking at the pipeline of activity, we were never going to get through that, that velocity with specialists. So it was absolutely about starting to leverage outcomes. Um, and that then led to us uh, creating, really, a framework of digital suppliers into uh, NHSD that allowed us to start delivering at pace. And, and we did physically have a number of third parties, so Kanos and some of Accenture, uh, some are mass tech and, and some are different. Uh, we were all based uh, in Victoria Street and it was truly rainbow teams uh, in way of what we were delivering. And that again, really, that really helped. But, but the initial psychological bit really of, of getting the commercial teams at NHSD to understand we were going to be buying at scale was that was a real learning curve. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of work um, needed uh, yeah, absolutely a lot of work needed in that area. And, and the other bit 
and you could interview anybody across government and healthcare and they would say the same. But one of the key challenges is when you've got ministers making commitments and you're then working to that artificial timeline. And, and that is a, that's a real tricky position because, you know, they're well within their, well within their remit to go ahead and do that. But a lot of the time, you know, the, there's a learning element where you need to make sure people are clear uh, on the sheer volume of work and for commitments that are being made. And, and this goes back to interoperability again. You know, in a lot of ways, the theory of opening up these systems, making them available and scaling them for national from local. I mean, it's, it's so logical. The reality is a shed load of registers, a shed load of old tech and a real nervousness around sharing data rightly. Uh, and so that, that was, uh, yeah, that was a real complexity. And I didn't deal with that day to day. Juliet did, but um, it was, uh, it was an ongoing challenge. I completely with you on those challenges around interoperability and especially that point about registers and data standards there. I mean, there's quite a few services, you know, if you look at skills for care data set, for example, it's a great project, but there are others that are being um, spun up and imagined now, especially on the back of some of the recent changes that are going to be happening uh, to legislation to give new powers to government and, uh, you know, that kind of interoperability plan around ICSs. Um, where there will be more central registers created by the sounds of it. But looking at the existing ones, you know, all the ones that exist across nursing and midwifery council the, and, all, and all the other bodies that sit around this and all the ALBs that own these systems as well, there isn't one single standard that they all adhere to in the way that they create and collect that data. And quite often there's parts of those registers that could be useful when um, connected with another register, for example, and to be able to cleanse that data and get it in a state where it's usable, especially if you're looking at multiple data points as well, that's going to be a lot of work going forward to make that, you know, usable for somebody who needs to um, make decisions on the back of it. I mean, the that that is absolutely a challenge. I think you can add to that you know, what we've done, and I use that term loosely because we had to in the last 12 months, to respond to the pandemic. And so more and more point solution, more and more complexity, uh, sitting on top, you know, spaghetti junction on top of an infrastructure that isn't as robust as it needs to be. And, and, you know, whether you put data at the top or the bottom, there's a need to access it. And at the minute, there's no easy way to do that. Yeah, completely agree. Well, brilliant. I mean, that it's great to hear a lot about the work that you did over at NHS Digital, um, and in particular, the, the stuff on Empower the Person. Since then, I know that the Empower the Person program now sits within NHSX. If you were giving some advice maybe to somebody who's picking up that project or, or picking up that program or looking to undertake something of a similar scale and complexity, are there any gems that you would uh, impart and things that they would consider when trying to do this sort of stuff? I think the thing that enabled me to be so successful at the NHS was having a senior responsible officer who wanted to focus on delivery as well. Juliet was new into government at that time uh, and new into healthcare and was rightly questioning why so many boards, so many groups, so much governance, so long for sign-off. Uh, and I think a dogged focus on actual delivery 
was key. So, you know, you can't, this is not the same as just running a, a service and building out pieces of something. It is bigger. Um, there is a piece of, uh, we created a visual proposition on what the end state could look like. We didn't do it so everyone could hold us to it and go, where's that screen? We did it so people can conceptually see the direction of travel. And and that that really bought us some currency and some understanding across the team. The change management is the always people, people, people. So, you know, all of these services, teams, outcomes, um, you know, it's people orientated and you've absolutely got to get people on board, buying into the vision and on on message in direction of travel. So I, I would say, you know, the change management can't be an afterthought. I would definitely, I would rival some of the um, old school governance and, and look to see what you can explore and change. If we'd asked if we could have been 10 boards and moved to one, we would have been told no. So I think sometimes, you know, just moving on some of that stuff, but um, top covers always needed. And, and, you know, that was where we worked incredibly well. But um, yeah, there's something super exciting about it. It will be the role that I look back on for the rest of my life. Uh, and I love the most because I actually made a difference. And I have no doubt that I will fancy a stint working in the NHS again because it's a national asset. And, you know, why would you not want to uh, go and play a tiny part in contributing towards that? Amazing. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks, Rach, for your time. Appreciate it. And, yeah, thank you for sharing your story of the Empower the Person program. No worries. 